Thank you very much, Siobhan. And the gratitude is all on my side in relation to um, the invitation and especially the display that on the other side of the room, uh, in particular, the all of the displays are very interesting, but the display of the correspondence between William Rowan Hamilton when he became president of the Academy and Mariah Edgeworth um, that Siobhan has, has prepared is really well worth a look. I'll refer to it in the course of the, of the lecture as well. Uh, so this is Mariah Edgeworth here um, taken from the family portrait uh, done by Adam Buck that's in the National Gallery of Ireland. She was born in 1768, so this year we're celebrating her 250th anniversary and I know it's nice to see friends here from Edgeworthstown who have done so much to uh, promote that, um, that, that that year and indeed to give more prominence to Edgeworth's uh, place in the cultural landscape. I had the pleasure of listening to Claire O'Halloran's opening lecture for this series on SoundCloud. It's less of a pleasure to be recorded. <laughs> it's fun when you can listen to them. Um, and she talked about um, a uh, very illuminating, deeply researched talk uh, that gave an insight into the history of the admission of women to learn at societies in Britain and Ireland. And the impression one had from the lecture was that this was a very painful and protracted uh, story, um, starting with efforts in the mid to late 19th century uh, and emerging really only haltingly into our own moment. Even what Claire described as the unambiguously enabling 1919 Sex Disqualification Removal Act um, still saw a kind of uh, reluctance to move forward in this direction. Uh, so the author that I talk about today, Mariah Edgeworth, uh, really wrote uh, before the beginnings of um, uh, the move towards suffrage and the, um, uh, the embryo sex disqualification act and so on. Uh, although her own letter to William Rowan Hamilton shows that these things were very much on her mind and part of the already becoming part of the kind of uh, the cultural imagination in this uh, period. And her part in the history of this particular learned society, the Royal Irish Academy, um, is an important one. Um, Claire ended with, uh, Claire O'Halloran ended with a quotation from Raya Edgeworth, uh, kind of to the effect that the Royal Irish Academy no longer believes it is better without the ladies. And as a recently admitted lady, I should say it's a, it's a huge privilege to be part of this um, learned, learned society. Uh, but when she responds to William Rowan Hamilton, she makes a number of very clear and helpful suggestions about how the Academy might best serve the cause of polite li literature and antiquities. And it's probably important to note in the first place that the discussion of whether or not women should be admitted follows on from the question of literature, um, not the other way around. It's what best can be done for, for literature. She made three suggestions, the details of which you can find on display there, um, uh, very uh, straightforward, um, one would think, and helpful ones, really. One is the introduction of medals, which she pointed out would have very little cost but a lot of impact. Uh, secondly was the suggestion uh, that the cost of evening events might be lowered for literary men who are not usually well off, Maria Edgeworth pointed out. Um, and thirdly, that women might be admitted to at least some part of the Academy's literary gatherings. Um, more generally, she advised Hamilton in the letter she wrote to him. He, he wrote to her first asking her advice in 1838, and she responded. Um, uh, she said, this is just um, some sections from the, from the letter, and you can read more about it also on the Royal Irish Academy 
uh, blog uh, and Siobhan's entry, entry there. And more generally in that letter, Edgeworth advised Hamilton to, as she said, hold the balance um, when he as president of the Academy. And it's an interesting phrase and it's worth thinking about. Uh, Siobhan Fitzpatrick's excellent introduction to this story takes up the story um, uh, this way. This is Siobhan. Miss Edgeworth's proposal was a bridge too far for a conservative society. The time was out of joint. Hamilton was holding the balance, Siobhan says, in an institution of which he had the measure. And indeed he did. So we have Hamilton holding things in the measure, taking, uh, to holding things in the balance, taking the measure of the, um, of the academy and what its members were, were ready for or able for in 1838. But we also have um, the history and the story of Mariah Edgeworth's own acts of balancing and measure taking. Um, and that's what I'm going to talk more about now this, this lunchtime, these acts of balance, in particular as they relate to her novels, uh, but also in terms of her wider, wider cultural world. And I suppose I want to make a kind of special case um, for literature as a different kind of archive to the one Clara talked about last time. So Clara Halloran looked, had done amazing research into minutes and decision making and kind of tracked the official history, if you like. But in Edgeworth's letters and fictions, we can find a kind of history of mentalities around women and knowledge, um, and where the kind of the uh, where the story uh, we can find the story the story unfolding in kind of insightful ways. I think. So, what can a focus on Mariah Edgeworth then tell us about learned women in the 19th century? How can her measured prose guide us through this kind of winding road um, in the narrative of progress towards the public recognition of women's learning um, increasingly in the 19th and into the 20th centuries? So I suppose you have that idea of measurement as in to take, um, to take measure of something to observe closely and accurately, uh, which is very significant in terms of the kinds of fiction that Edgeworth became known for, which were closely observed realist accounts of Irish life. And a number of her first readers uh, remarked that th this was new to them, to read about Ireland in this kind of closely observed way, uh, adhering to the protocols of, of realist fiction. Um, but it's also uh, to find in those um, uh, novels sometimes experiments or attempts to test things or try things out. So there's measuring in that kind of science and calibrating in that scientific sense as well. Um, and of course, to be measured in tone. And that's really significant about Edgeworth. And I'll come back to that point when I conclude about the question of a measured tone and how important that is and how also um, uh, we uh, read that now because for contemporaries that can often seem very limiting uh, to find a woman writer measuring her own capacity and holding herself back at different, uh, at different times. So in, the, in relation to um, uh, the world in which Edgeworth grew up in then, I mentioned already that her connections with the Academy ran deep. Her father, Richard Lovell Edgeworth, was a founder member. And in William Rowan Hamilton's letter, he mentions having um, Lord Charlemont's uh, document in front of him. And he can see that the father is, is a, a, signing, a founder member of, of the Academy. Uh, and the founding of the Academy coincided very closely with the return of Richard Lovell Edgeworth with his young family to live in um, Edgeworthstown in, in County Longford uh, and there to kind of create um, uh, in some ways kind of new possibilities both for himself 
uh, and his family, but also for the Ireland in which he was to which he was moving as well. Uh, he says in the um, in his memoirs that he moved to Ireland. He says for the improvement of my estate, the education of my children, and the amelioration of the inhabitants of my country. And those two, those three connected things, um, the improve, practical improvements on the land, educating the children, and improving the lot of the inhabitants of my country, as he put it, are very closely linked throughout all of Edward's own writing. And we can see this kind of spread out in her uh, prose output, as she wrote uh, works for children, philosophical works on education, as well as her um, fiction for, uh, for adults. So in Edwardstown, then, we have a kind of um, uh, a culture of improvement, uh, but also experiment. And I've mentioned that word already. And Richard Lovell Edgeworth is known um, as somebody who uh, was extremely interested in new technologies, was always trying to kind of adapt and innovate new technologies. And in some of the older histories, people rather make fun of this aspect of Richard Lovell Edgeworth, his attempts to invent a new kind of machine for cutting turnips. Um, or being ousted by Mr. McAdam and his efforts to create a new surface for the roads, um, finding that uh, Tar McAdam has already been patented. And he seems to be sometimes just a little bit behind um, uh, the curve of scientific uh, progress. Nonetheless, there's this kind of constant effort to experiment and to innovate. Um, and part of that uh, culture of experiment concerned the education of his children. And it affected the first two children especially, Mariah Edgeworth and her brother Lovell Edgeworth. And he had quite different methods of educating the two of them, his eldest son and his eldest daughter. Uh, Lovell, he decided he would educate along the methods of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, um, to try and not um, uh, damage too much of his natural energies or will and to give the child kind of free play and to allow him uh, to develop in his own way. Uh, that particular experiment didn't go very well, and Lovell Edgeworth always seems to have had a kind of a troubled, uh, a troubled life. There's a lot of references in the later correspondence to Mariah Edgeworth having to bail him out of debt and, uh, and so on. Um, and with Mariah Edgeworth, the nature of the experiment took um, uh, uh, was in relation to gender. He very much wanted to educate her as fully um, as he possibly could to not deny her any books. When they moved to Ireland first, when she was 13 years old, he gave her Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations to read. Um, and that was to be part of her education in moral philosophy, but also in estate management and in fiction writing as well. Um, and one of the results of that unusual education is the highly unusual body of writing of hers that grew from, uh, that grew from this. Uh, but when uh, critics write about, um, literary critics maybe especially, but historians too sometimes, write about this wider culture of improvement, those terms that Richard Lovell Edgeworth uses so unthinkingly, the improvement of my estate, the education of my children, the amelioration of the lives of the inhabitants of this country. When people write about that wider culture of, of improvement, it can often be described as in a very kind of blanket affair, uh, a sort of a rolling out of a one single set of pres uh, prescriptive ideas over the Irish uh, landscape. Um, Mariah Edgeworth, in particular, has a reputation as what's called a didactic writer, assertively realistic, as Helen O'Connell says in her book about improvement fiction, always laboring and working to impose a single vision of Ireland, an improved Ireland, how Ireland should be, um, and so on. 
Uh, and this is the kind of, this is just one of thousands of examples, really, um, of how that idea about Edgeworth kind of filtered into the popular consciousness in the 19th century and into the 20th and 21st, indeed. This is um, the romantic man of letters, biographer Trelawney, talking about Edgeworth, he says, as one of those millinering cutters out of human nature into certain patterns of given rules in education. And he's, uh, you know, treating this very dismissively. And that idea about Edgeworth has really settled down very snugly into Irish studies as well, uh, where she's often described as being um, moralizing or didactic or prescriptive. Very often, I would hazard to say, by people who haven't really read the novels. Um, but that's a different, uh, a different story. Uh, so um, what I, I think instead is that you have this, you do certainly have a huge commitment to this idea of improvement. It's really, really important. But it's a kind of rolling, unstable drama of improvement that's always running into trouble, uh, running up against obstacles, uh, and being kind of reworked and remade by uh, the Edgeworths often on their own uh, land in Edgeworthstown, but especially, again, in the novels. Um, so it's a kind of landscape of improvement that's very ridged and contoured. And a particular contour line is the one around gender, I think. Uh, it's about where women uh, stand in this idea of an improved society, how important it is to have women's uh, lives improved, uh, their educational prospects improved as part of a wider culture of, of improvement. And Edgeworth was really involved in a very lively set of debates about women's rights and women's education, which place her just very much centrally in doing the kind doing the kinds of thing and thinking about the kinds of things that lots and lots of other women in Britain and Ireland were thinking about from the 1780s um, onwards. I suppose if you have the beginning of modern feminism, if you like, with Mary Wollstonecraft writing about the rights of women um, in the, um, from the late 1780s onwards, um, or the more kind of conservative set of debates around women's education, which don't always take the same radical turn as what Wollstonecraft would be writing. And it's true to say that often in Edward's fiction, you find her poking gentle fun at radical feminism. Uh, she stereotypes characters who go about shouting huzzah, huzzah for the rights of women and falling into ponds afterwards. Uh, and in her, uh, in an early unpublished play called Whim for Whim, she has a sort of satire on blue-stocking uh, learned women um, as well. Uh, but one of the things I think about all that is it means she was reading all of that. She knew that world well enough to mock it uh, and to stereotype it a little bit. Uh, so she's certainly kind of in, in a debate about feminism and thinking about it. And in, in any case, in both in relation to um, the more radical discourse of rights and in relation to the more conservative ideas about women's education. Uh, one thing that's common across both of those domains is literature and the role of literature and why it's important um, to write novels and to have plots in with which uh, women are at the center of them and women's lives are part of the center of, of those. Um, and more generally, if we were to think about it in terms of the, the wider sweep of enlightenment, that broader narrative of progress from the 18th century onwards, it was certainly the case uh, that it often seemed that women's progress served as a kind of a handy shorthand for, for the general education and progress of a society. Uh, so how, how liberated are the women in that society? 
um, and the, um, British and Irish feminists often use that kind of shorthand as a way of holding their own cultures to account, uh, that we can't say that the women of the East, for example, are oppressed if, if we are not given um, uh, certain privileges in our own society. Um, and you could sort of um, sum up these debates uh, about women in education via a rather long quotation from Raya Edgeworth, which I won't read now in, in detail, but um, suffice it to say that uh, it's a discussion between an older woman and a younger woman um, that takes place in Edgeworth's final novel, Helen. It's her novel of 1837. And it's a novel that's interested in reform, in O'Connellite politics in Ireland, but the Reform Act in, in Britain as well, about the possibility of enlarging the franchise in very limited, in limited ways. Um, and it's especially interested in what role women can have in public life. Um, and the two characters who are in discussion here are an older lady, Lady Davenant, who's been something of a politician in her life. Her husband has been in the cabinet. Um, she has uh, been always at the edges of great political events, shaping them, nudging the, the elbows of statesmen and so on. And Helen is a young, polite, well-brought-up woman who doesn't think that kind of politics is for her, capital P politics or high politics. Um, and she um, uh, kind of actually disowns the idea of having any interest in politics when Lady Davenant says to her, you know, I hope one day, Helen, um, you may also be interested in politics when you're older. And she says here, she says, I hope not, says Helen, being, you know, a polite young woman. Um, her, her ladyship says, you hope not, and this is the bit in bold. The position of women in society is somewhat different from what it was 100 years ago, or it was 60, or may I say 30 years since. Women are now so highly cultivated, and political subjects are at present so important, of such high interest to all human creatures who live together in society. You can hardly suspect, Helen, that you, as a rational being, can go through the world as it now is without forming any opinion on points of public importance. And she, she accuses Helen of using the missy phrase, you know, being a little miss, uh, and the namby-pamby little missy phrase, oh, I'm not interested in, in politics. Uh, and one of the reasons I chose that particular passage just to show you is because it also serves as the epigraph to a really uh, fabulous study of women and enlightenment in Great Britain by Karen O'Brien, uh, published by Cambridge a few years ago. So in a sense, uh, it really sums up a set of debates about women in enlightenment um, outside of the Irish context, actually, although it bears certain inflections in the Irish context um, uh, as well. So to give you um, more of an idea in the Irish context what this might actually look like, what this kind of commitment that Edgeworth always is showing in her novel, always testing, like in that scene, Helen thinks one thing and then she's challenged and tested to think another thing. And the plot itself proves very testing for Helen and she has to kind of show her mettle at the end to become the kind of woman she can be with some public role. And that's the kind of question is the balance between private life and public, uh, and public life life. Um, uh, and the scene I want you to just quickly talk you through now is from Edgeworth's final Irish novel. So Helen was her last um, novel altogether in 1837. 
The last Irish novel was published in 1817, and it's called Ormond. And it's a novel that meant a lot to Edgeworth because she was writing it as her father died in, in 1817. And there's evidence in the letters that she was rushing to finish this novel, to get it to the press so that he could see it between boards uh, before, he, before he died. And the very opening of the novel is the drawing room of an Irish country house. It's set on some place called the Black Island. Um, and uh, critics of the novel often, there's different, various references to the mainland and the West. And people often think, critics of the novel often assume it's, it's set in the West of Ireland, that it's a Connemara novel. But actually, it's much more likely to be a novel set in Loch Ree, uh, set on one of the inhabited islands in the middle of that um, uh, that, that lake um, in, the, in, in the river Shannon. Um, and so Edgeworth is kind of playing with this idea of moving west, if you like, but not, she's not doing the full Lady Morgan account of, of Connemara. And so in this country house, um, the men are rejoining the women in the dining room. Um, and this is Sir Ulick O'Shane arriving into the drawing room where the women are all sitting about. Um, at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, the narrative tells us, and he's accompanied by what he called his rear guard, veterans of the old school of good fellows, um, who at those times in Ireland, times long since past, and remember in Helen as well, it was these times are different, the times have changed, um, deemed it essential to health, happiness, and manly character to swallow and show themselves able to stand after swallowing a certain number of bottles of claret per day or night. And he just comes in, and they've all been drinking, and he proceeds to kind of upbraid his wife for the behavior of the women in the drawing room. So the sexes have been separate. They're joining together. And he comes in, and he says, of all the figures in nature and art, the formal circle is universally the most obnoxious to conversation. And he comes in and criticizes the fact that the women are sitting in a formal circle um, and um, says, you know, Lady O'Shane, let us have no more of these permanent sittings at Castle Herm Hermitage. She says, Sir Ulick, I'm sure I should be very glad if it were possible, replied Lady O'Shane, to have no more permanent sittings at Castle Hermitage. But when the gentlemen are at their bottle, I really don't know what the ladies can do but sit in a circle. Uh, so there's a relationship here between a kind of a divided society, divided genders, um, all represented within the world of this um, Irish country house uh, drawing room. Uh, Sir Ulick is kind of rakish and having fun, and his wife is, is frosty and disapproving. Uh, and so the kind of the liveliness in this account is all on his side, um, if you like. Um, uh, the, uh, Sir Ulick's comments um, are very interestingly extremely close to those of the Irish blue stocking Elizabeth Vesey, who lived in London at the end of the 18th century and whom Amy Prendergast has written about so well in her book on the Irish um, blue stockings. Um, Elizabeth Vesey wrote about blue stocking gatherings uh, uh, and described what she said as her horror at formal circles. She said she hated to see either a semicircle with one woman at one end and one the other or a circle of women together. And she said she preferred what she described as a zigzag mode of social interaction and communication. And some of her blue stocking contemporaries put this down to her kind of, uh, her crazy Irishness, basically, that she wanted everything up, to, up, up topsy turvy and hibernic, uh, sort of Hibernian. Um, uh, it's curious to find um, 
Sir Ulick here giving the blue stocking point of view, I think. Um, Sir Ulick in the novel is a corrupt landlord. He's a bad banker. His bank goes um, uh, uh, bust in the middle of the novel. He's associated with kind of all kinds of old corruptions that are there to be reformed, as in the rear guard with the gentleman at his bottle. Uh, and yet Edgeworth puts the kind of enlightened blue stocking point of view in the mouth of this bad Anglo-Irish landlord. Now, why does she do that? In general, what we find within the novels is that all kinds of strange specimens are framed within a sort of fictional morphology, a kind of a world, if you like, where she takes ideas and associates them with characters, and they often turn out to be not what you would predict at all. So back to these earlier criticisms of her as a kind of a milliner cutting out patterns of human behavior, that simply doesn't um, work when you get, pay more attention to the novels and to the particular kinds of dialogue. The fact that she's so interested in the drinking here is interesting as well, the, the gentleman who have to have a certain number of bottles of claret per night. And it might refer to the ending of her first and best-known novel, Castle Rackrent, which ends with the question um, about improvement. And it's about the act of union. And the, this is the ending of Castle Rackrent, which attempts to determine, and I quote, whether a union will hasten or retard the amelioration of this country. And then the final line is, did the Warwickshire militia, who were chiefly artisans, teach the Irish to drink beer, or did they learn from the Irish to drink whiskey? Um, it's a very curious, kind of open-ended way to conclude a novel. And like here with um, Sir Ulick and his lady talking about um, uh, the men's drinking, uh, there you have a sense of images drawn very directly from life. Um, uh, from a life that is fully, uh, that is a life of bodies, of stomachs, of thirst, of hunger, um, and a kind of um, emerging literary romanticism, if you like, around that idea of a kind of the representation of a, of a full life. Uh, so you have then uh, what James Chandler has called an interdisciplinary commitment to experiment and practical observation. Um, in Edgeworth's novels. Um, and these are the lines along which she pursues these questions of women's sociability, women's correspondence, women's um, communication. And just to say a few more words about that, uh, we can think of this very helpfully, I think, in terms of some of the new, um, the newer women's history of the 18th, late 18th and early 19th century. So Harriet Guest, for example, in her book about uh, women's public roles and women's public life talks about uh, the formulation she uses is that in order to kind of think about women's public life, it's very hard to go into archives and find evidence uh, of what women did publicly. But she said, we can go and look at texts, including novels, and we can think, she says, about the private worlds from which public faces emerged. Uh, so the kinds of the drawing rooms, uh, the bedrooms, the places where um, uh, women were involved in the discussion of public matters, but in, often in private fora, or in ambiguously public-private fora, like, for example, dining tables and drawing rooms. And you have a real sense of that here. Um, so we know then um, that Edgeworth was thinking through these issues. She was often using in her plots ways of 
very much turning over and over again this question of the relationship between private and public and how uh, women could have a public role but also maintain um, uh, their, the kind of boundaries around private life. And one of the things that Harriet Guest says in her book, it's called Small Change, um, is that she's actually one of a number of Georgian women, including Jane Austen, including Frances Burney, who uh, are remembered now for their representations of domestic life, courtship, marriage, um, plots around courtship and so on, but all of whom lived unconventional lives themselves. None of them married, none of them had domestic lives in that sense of having a husband and children of their own. Uh, and so it's curious uh, that in a sense when we look back to the novels, it's the same with Jane Austen again, you can often find threaded through these private fictions uh, a kind of a concern with women's public, public roles. Um, so just to tell you a little bit more about that and to thread through that um, history, and I'll start to sort of move towards um, uh, some concluding remarks after this then. Uh, I've been talking about Edgeworth in terms of the private-public relationship and some of the contradictions and complexities that the novels allow us to see in a way that more formal historical archives possibly don't always. Um, we do know, though, that she was herself interested in the idea of public organization of women, uh, public uh, groupings of women, uh, certainly in her very early life, maybe less so later, and so, um, uh, although by the time she gets to 1838 and she's writing to William Rowan Hamilton, she's really kind of saying things that she's been saying in different ways from her very first publications in the 1790s. Uh, so I mentioned earlier on that Castle Rackrent is her best known um, uh, work really still and it, it's very much an Irish novel and it's very widely taught as the first Irish novel and so on. But Edward's first publication was actually a series of kind of mock letters and essays called Letters to Literary Ladies that she published in 1795. And the reason she published it was because her father's friend, um, the poet and abolitionist Thomas Day, had written to him to say he thought he was going wrong with the way he was educating his daughter. And so Edgeworth read, her father being the kind of person he was, gave her the correspondence with his friend. And Edgeworth read this and wrote a response uh, about women's education and why women ought to be educated. And she writes it as a series of letters between two gentlemen, one uh, pro-women's uh, education and one against. So again, she's experimenting and playing with different voices, the crusty old voice, the more uh, uh, enlightened voice, but she's seeing what she can do with these different voices. And not so long after that, she and her father together, Mariah Edgeworth and Richard Lovell Edgeworth, wrote to one of the best-known uh, women poets and writers of the day, Anna Letitia Barbold, they wrote to her in 1804, to suggest setting up a journal just for literary ladies, a journal that would uh, only publish work by women uh, and would provide a kind of supportive network for women's writing. Now this is 1804, that's really early for a suggestion like this, and it's rather more radical than the kind of, in, in one line at least, than the kind of work we associate um, Edgeworth with. Barbold at the time uh, was kind of riding a, a wave of popularity just as Edgeworth herself was becoming uh, better known. But Barbold was very shortly afterwards uh, to kind of fall hugely from public favour. Uh, so Anna Barbold then in 1811 published a poem about the British war effort called 1811 where she vehemently opposed the slaughter and the um, sacri human sacrifice of the Napoleonic 
wars and she received very negative reviews. And she and, and the Edgeworth sort of pulled away from her after that. So there's a whole other story about Edgeworth and the Barbels, which is very well explored in Emma Cleary's new book about Barbold, 1811, and which is also um, something that we can learn more about in a, um, a lecture on Edgeworth coming up in the National Library in uh, February, which I'll tell you more about at the, at the end of the talk um, today by Jane Randall. So Edgeworth wrote back to Barbold, uh, sorry, Barbold wrote back to Edgeworth saying, there is no bond of union among literary women any more than among literary men. Barbold said, different sentiments and different connections separate them much more than the joint interests of their sex unite them. And I think that's really interesting to get that moment in 1804 of two women thinking about what unites them as writers and what separates them. And the, indeed, they were to become much more separate um, with the years. Barbold had already turned down the blue stocking Elizabeth Montague's suggestion that she uh, lead a head a college for, uh, for young women. Um, and then in 1810, Anna Letitia Barbold went on to uh, uh, create a new series called The Modern British Novelists. Uh, and she wanted to put one of Edgeworth's novels into that series. And this is the point at which um, the novel as a form is um, being kind of anthologized and put uh, in collected editions and so on. The early years of the 19th century are very important for that, a new kind of public visibility for the novel um, as a genre, which Barbold is, is part of. And in the inclusion, in the discussion about including Edgeworth's novel, Belinda, one of the problems that Barbold ran into was that she thought that Edgeworth treated the question of racial difference too lightly in her novel, Belinda, published in 1801, the novel she wrote just after um, um, uh, Castle Rackrent. And here again, we see this curious combination of improvement and experiment that characterizes Edgeworth's fiction, perhaps also uh, getting a glimpse into the distance of Mariah Edgeworth from the kind of London literary world that Anna Letitia Barbold knew so well at this point, um, and that Edgeworth herself really was yet to get more of a glimpse into. She was to later, of course, but this is still 1810, uh, her visit to London in 1813 is when she was kind of hailed as a literary lion and uh, courted and fated. And this is the discussion they have about the changes in the novel, uh, where one of the things that happens is that an English serving girl marries a West Indian uh, servant in the uh, first edition of the novel. And Barbold says she thinks that doesn't work. And Edwards writes back and says, yes, you're right. Jackson, she says, now an English countryman, is substituted for the husband of Lucy instead of Juba, who is the West Indian servant. Many people having been scandalized at the idea of a black man marrying a white woman. My father says the gentlemen have horrors upon this subject and would draw conclusions very unfavorable to a female writer who appear to recommend such unions. As I do not understand the subject, I trust to his better judgment. And end with, for Juba, read Jackson. Now, having read the quotation from Helen and that indictment of Missy Namby Pamby uh, kind of disowning of uh, women's authority, you're tempted to wonder if Edgeworth is um, being Missy or Namby Pamby herself here when she says, I defer to you, I defer to my father, I don't understand the subject. Um, and it certainly seems the case that she, she is remarkably naive about this topic um, in, in the period. And the combination of the correspondence with Barbold and her father's advice causes her to change it. 
Um, and so we're seeing around this kind of cultural world in Edgeworthstown these kinds of really quite intense debates about uh, not just about gender but sexuality and race as well as very significant in the in the period. Edgeworthstown House, which you can't see terribly well um, in this slide, was of course a place of um, uh, kind of, you know, much visited, especially into the later 19th century, became very much a kind of a center for literary and cultural um, debate of, of all kinds. Um, and Edgeworth was to um, spend most of the rest of her life there, although making regular visits to, to London, as well as some time in France and um, Switzerland. From about 1814, Mariah Edgeworth was to receive her first ever really negative critical reviews. Before that, she had been very much praised. And very interestingly, those negative reviews came uh, for a novel called Patronage, which was a novel about English public life. And the criticisms, really, one of the things they really remarked upon um, was that she was just like one of the English travellers coming to Ireland, whom she laughs at in her Irish novels, that she is herself that naive traveller into her English public life when she tries to write about things like the law or medicine um, or diplomacy or high politics in relation to English life. Um, and then the whole moment of the reviews of Patronage, see a real turning away from Edgeworth and a kind of the start of a fall in her critical uh, reputation. Uh, Sidney Smith, the reviewer, says she wrote it after her visit to London. Uh, he says in a letter, if she has put into her novel people who fed her and her odious father, then she is not trustworthy. Uh, which is remarkable, I think. So you have this sense, in a way, that she's kind of pushing from private into public life, but meeting barriers as she does so, uh, and trying to kind of, again, measure and recalibrate what's possible and what can be done. And we don't have time to talk about them today, but if there were um, more opportunity, one would, of course, want to spend more time talking about Mariah Edgeworth's voluminous and very compelling correspondence, much of which is held just down the road um, in, the, in the National Library of Ireland, uh, where there is kind of not just correspondence from Edgeworth, but across the entire family. Um, and you can see uh, the kind of wider networks that grow from the correspondence. This is an image um, in one of the letters to her brother of her brother William Edgeworth meeting the uh, Scottish engineer Thomas Telford uh, in, in North Wales. He, he, these letters spool outwards to much wider circles of improvement, scientific progress and um, and so on. And this is an image from one of the London letters from 1814, drawn by Edgeworth herself, who it's been pointed out to me was terribly bad at drawing. It's part of the unconventional education she had, was she didn't learn many kind of uh, conventionally feminine uh, abilities um, of a kind of an experiment she and the family were having in what she calls simultaneous reading in 1821, when Walter Scott's new novel, The Pirate, had just been uh, published and uh, thanks, she says, to the miracles of steam, the steamship going so quickly now between um, Ireland and Britain, the family in Edgeworthstown and the family who are gathered in London decide to try and read the novel together and exchange letters back and forth about their reading experience. And this is Edward's drawing of the family circle in Audley Street in London, so the family in Edgeworthstown can see how they are composed. So again, it's that private public um, line that's very really hard to draw and productively hard to draw in, case of, in the case of um, Edgeworth. Uh, uh, one of the things the correspondence shows, um, and um, 
uh, it's worth observing is how often she uses the correspondence to kind of form public opinions and make public judgments. So these are very private letters. Uh, I just spent the morning looking at some more of the letters down in the National Library, and often you find notes on the letters saying, not for public, or I just read a letter this morning and written in the middle of it was, mum's the word. Uh, and she's often instructing her correspondents not to share her letters, not to read them aloud, and so on. Um, uh, but in, in the letters that, that within this kind of protected private circle, which she's trying to stop from going too public, uh, you find uh, accounts of kind of the emergence, I suppose, of criticism and a, a, a learned discussion of literature. I love this quotation because she's talking to her sister, Fanny, about reading Lady Morgan, the um, Edgeworth's contemporary, and they're often contrasted from one another, um, Edgeworth being thought to be much cooler than Lady Morgan's kind of passionate prose. And Edgeworth says in this letter, NB, I have been exceedingly entertained by her last volume. This is Lady Morgan. And I am sure you, who judge for yourself, are above Captain Beaufort's prejudices, will be entertained and amused by it too. As to her vanities, what matter? This is still Lady Morgan. Every reader ought to have a thrashing and winnowing machine going in their own hands, which should throw off the chaff and keep the grain. Uh, and so with that idea of um, the kind of emergence, if you like, of um, a more professional world of literary judgment, which was happening, of course, very interestingly in the Royal Irish Academy through polite literature and antiquities from the 1780s onwards, but also happening in this kind of private public world of correspondence, of, um, uh, of the novels as well that Edgeworth is writing, we can see, I think, the, um, uh, the emergence of um, one really important chapter of the kind of cultivation of learning among women in the 18th and 19th centuries. So I'll end with that. Thank you.